morning. So glad to see you all here on Labor Day weekend. We've got a lot of things going this fall, don't we? Too much energy and enthusiasm almost for me to listen to. But that's Melanie. With all these things starting up in the fall, we are also beginning a new series. We're going to try to approach that with the same vigor as the children's message, though maybe not as surprising. Uh, I've really been looking forward to uh, doing this series. Uh, You know, of all the, I've been a Christian for a good while, of all the books in the New Testament that I've heard sermon series on, or uh, Bible studies that have taken on various books. There are, only, there are only a few, but there are several books that I've never heard a series on before. Second Corinthians is one of those books. I don't know why. I haven't heard anything on it. Second uh, and Third John and Jude. Although they wouldn't be a series, they're sort of, some are so short, they're half a chapter, not a full chapter. Uh, but Galatians is another one of those books. And I thought about it and I said, you know, I don't think I've ever really sort of worked through Galatians in any any respects. I said, this this is what I want to do. So if if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Galatians. And we'll start with sort of a, we're going to look through some of the text, but kind of an introductory session on the book of Galatians. The name Galatians tells us it was written to the churches in the Roman province called Galatia. Had a heavy... I had a heavy Gentile population, and um, I've got to get my clicker up here, a heavy Gentile population and of, of folks that the Greeks called barbarians that lived on the north part of the Black Sea. And they migrated, they migrated down from there and then um, east into what's modern-day Turkey. And Paul, on his first missionary journey, he visited several cities there spent some time, you can read about those events in Acts 14, and uh, so that was his first trip, he went all the way through those cities, the ones, the green territory of Galatia are the ones that he uh, went to, and then he somewhat retraced his steps back to Antioch over in Syria. Uh, He did also, in his second and third trips, he went right through those cities coming directly from Antioch to, uh, through Tarsus to them and then on further west from there. So he did stop by. Uh, but these churches were the primary recipients of this letter. Scholars don't know for sure, but it's thought that he wrote this uh, letter after his first missionary journey but before his subsequent two. That this happened relatively early in the life, in life of Paul's ministry uh, going out to the, to the Gentiles, that the problem cropped up right after he had been there on his first journey. Well, the, the book of Galatians is a little different than most of the epistles in that it's a letter of reaction. Paul's writing, reacting to some teaching that, uh, that some teachers who came in after him, after his first missionary journey, had been teaching these churches. And so Paul got, and you'll see, it's a very energetic letter, very intense letter, because uh, what they taught was, was something that was uh, off-line from the gospel and off-line from, from God's grace. And, uh, and we're going to see that. We don't have any 
documentation of the teaching. We just have uh, Paul's letter as he tries to set them straight. So it's, um, it, it, we just get one side of the conversation. You know, there's a comedian named Bob Newhart uh, who, uh, who started his career in the 1960s and, and had a long career. Uh, some of you younger folks may remember him from the movie Elf. He was uh, Papa Elf was the name. Okay, thank you. I, I had it on the slide, but the slide's gone. Uh, Papa Elf. So, uh, and Bob Newhart in his stand-up career was particularly noted for a, couple, a number of sketches where he would be a guy on the phone and you would only hear his side of the conversation. And so I have a clip of that to show. If you'll run that, please. So he's got this one-sided conversation with a squad of people that defuse bombs. It's always very exciting, but it got me wondering, what would ever happen if a non-courageous, non-expert human were ever faced with a problem of defusing one of these bombs? So you're going to have to picture, if you will, uh, this is the, uh, the police uh, station of a small eastern coastal city, and the chief of police is sitting at his desk. Now, this is the only police department that has a princess phone. <laughs> Hello, Lieutenant Stevenson here. But Patrolman Willard Hackmaster. Oh, hell, hello, Willie. Uh, Willard, you're supposed to call in every hour, you know. You you found a shell on the beach. You uh, you, you think that's unusual? Do you, Willie, finding a, a shell on the beach? <laughs> it, it, it isn't that kind of shell. But, uh, what's the matter? Doesn't it uh, sound like the ocean when you hold it up to your ear? Well, it is. <laughs> Oh, oh, that kind of shell. Oh, it's probably a dud of some kind, Willard. I'll, I'll send some men out in it. Oh, is, is, is that right? Yeah, I was, uh, I was sort of hoping that was your watch for making that noise, Willard. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm going to give it to you straight, Willard. You, uh, you, you got a life on there, Willard. Willard? Willard? Willard, stop that whining. Willard, you've got nothing to worry about. i got the manual right here in front of me. All right, so this is, what happening, this is what's happening as we study the book of Galatians. Just like in his sketch, we only have Paul's response. But in his response, we can do a little detective work to figure out what Paul was addressing. So this morning, we're going to look at Galatians 1.1 through 2.10, and we're going to read what Paul says. We're going to deduce what these other teachers were teaching. And... Uh, at least so far in the book. We're going to have to get through the whole book to really get that full picture. And uh, thirdly, I want to end by taking a step back from this section and summarize the primary difference between what Paul taught these, what Paul taught and these teachers taught. So we're going to read Paul, we're going to see what the teachers taught, and summarize the primary difference for the whole book. Well, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, we have Paul, an apostle, sent not for men nor by men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Note the phrase there, sent not from men nor by men, but by Jesus Christ. Question for you. What do you think he meant by that? This is unusual. It's not unheard of, but it's unusual in most of Paul's letters in how he identifies himself. What do you think 
Paul meant by this phrase. Any, any ideas? Authority? Where's authority came from? Very good. Yeah, other ideas. Yeah, qualification. Sure. Sure. Yes. And he's not doing it for himself. Yeah, great. All those things are involved here. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, so he, he's not just, hey, I'm Paul the Apostle. It's, hey, I'm Paul the Apostle. I'm sent from God. No man sent me. No group of people. I didn't come from, nobody said, hey, Paul, why don't you go over there and straighten them out, tell them this. He says, no, I'm coming based on my authority from God, directed by God to come and do this. Let's go on. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really not the gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. So, using our detection skills, we can already see Paul's making a contrast here. And he's contrasting living in the grace of Christ with this other gospel. So this other gospel is something other than grace. Paul seems to specifically be contrasting uh, this gospel with the grace of Christ. That the grace somehow isn't uh, the primary thing. Then, in the last line of verse 7, Paul uses the word pervert or distort. You know, in Greek, uh, that word is not used frequently in the New Testament. It means turn around to reverse to change, to corrupt. And you know where you're, uh, one place that you read it is Acts 2, when Peter is preaching to the Pentecost crowd there. And he's referring to the end times and some of the prophecies there. And he quotes this, which Christ had said. And he said, um, the, the sun will be turned into darkness. That turned into is this same word here. So he's saying the bright sun in the end time will be reversed. Its function corrupted so much that it will become darkness. Kind of the opposite of what the sun is, at least in our experience. So it's like the good news is a straight, clear path to God, but this new teaching turns it around. So it's not really functioning as it should. You know, in the Civil War, the northern uh, armies when they would be in the south and they came across railroad tracks, they would pull up the railroad uh, rails. They'd, they'd, they'd pile up the wood, start a fire, and they'd heat the middle of these rails uh, red hot. And then when they were hot, they'd go bend them around trees. The reason they did this, the reason they took their time to do this is because uh, the south did not have an unlimited supply of steel or iron to work with. And these rails, once heated and bent and twisted, they couldn't just be hammered out straight again so the train could, could go on. This ruined them. They would have to be recast, reformed. And so by doing this, they were robbing the South of necessary resources. They called these Sherman's neckties after General William Tecumseh Sherman. 
who was known for uh, waging war on a very broad front. Well, like those train rails, this other teaching was a message that changed and corrupted the gospel, making it useless. That it just didn't put a kink into the gospel of grace. It twisted it into something distorted, unusable, and unacceptable. Now listen to what Paul says about it in verse, about this in verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be accursed. This is a, this is a worked up Paul. Uh, he, 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 was, he was in a fury here. Could he have been more uh, empathetic? Empathetic. Could he have be, been more, uh, more, yes, that's the word. <laughs> could, he have, could he have been more intense and more strong about this? Yes, he could. He could have written verse 9, which says, as we have already said, so now say again. If anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be accursed. So do you think this is an important point to Paul? He uses strong words and he's repeating it. Well, let's talk about the word he used for accursed. It's the word anathema. You may have heard of it. Again, this is another word used very few times in the New Testament. So it's, it's hard to go to ancient Greek and say, uh, you know, what, what is the meaning of this? There's a lot of wor- words that are used a lot of times in the Bible or a lot of times in literature outside the Bible. This is, this is used less often. So the few times it appears in the New Testament sort of affects its, and you can tell, the, its definition. But its definition sort of means object of God's disfavor, something dedicated to evil and thus accursed or the denunciation of something that is accursed. So, these people taught something different from grace, and that something is not okay with God. Not okay. In the next couple of verses, Paul gives us another clue into this other teaching. I want you to know brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preach is not of human origin, and I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Sound familiar? At least in concept? Remember the first verse? Paul, an apostle, sent not from men, nor by men, but by Jesus Christ. And now he's saying, this gospel is not of human origin, I did not receive it, from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I got it right from Christ. So again, a form of repetition to strengthen that argument in that case. You get the feeling that in addition to preaching a different gospel, that they had undermined somewhat Paul's authority or questioned the source of the message he taught. And you, you find that out in the rest of the first chapter and into the second chapter. So Paul's empath- uh What's that word? His strong statement here. Yeah, thank you. Empath- <laughs> Reinforces what he began in the first verse. He's an apostle sent not by men, 
And the gospel didn't come from men. God conceived this gospel and revealed it to Paul. It's not Paul's gospel. It's not a gospel that the apostles who sat at the feet of Jesus learned, although it's the same one, but that's not how Paul got it. He's saying, I didn't get it from any of those guys. It wasn't on the agenda, agenda for his Rabbi Gamaliel's classes. It didn't come free with his Kindle. He didn't walk by... Uh, his local synagogue's conference room and see a printed handout of the gospel left on the table. No, God brought it to Paul. It's the kind of good news that only God could have come up with. You can picture uh, Moses with the Israelites out in the desert. They're at Sinai. They've come out of Egypt. And what if Moses had called all 70 elders along with the Levites together for a meeting and say, look, we have a mess on our hands. We keep doing wrong things a lot of the time. Remember just last week when you guys let those, those guys worship the golden calf? Unacceptable. God brought us up out of Egypt. Now let's help him, figure, help him out and figure a way to make a fresh start for humanity. Does anybody have any ideas we can suggest to him? And a hand goes up in the back. Yes, Mahalalel. Mahalalel speaks. Okay, I'm just brainstorming here, a little outside-the-box thinking, but what if we just told God he should cover our mistakes? Completely, just bury them deep. Better yet, maybe he can pay for them himself and get us off the hook. Gets us a clean conscience that way. They're not just buried. Oh, 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 okay. You talk about a new start. Get this. Maybe God should pay for all the sins that have happened since Adam and Eve. Retroactive coverage. We would be smelling like daisies. Nothing holding us back. No. No, wait. I have it. Let's recommend that he pays for all the disobedience and rebellion that has happened and all future sins. The ones that we will ever commit, no matter what it cost him. And that he should love us completely all of the time. We should recommend that plan. No. That wouldn't happen. Nobody would dream up a gospel like that except God himself. Um, uh, The the former pastor of Mars Hill Church, whose name is... No. No, no, no. The uh, out in Seattle... Driscoll, Mark Driscoll, yes, you're right, thank you. Mark Driscoll, who resigned some time ago for a variety of of problems, but this this was independent of those problems. He was interviewed and asked about hell. Do you believe in hell? And Mark said, of course, you know, the Bible Bible projects that. But he said, you know, I, I don't have a problem with hell. I don't know why people have a problem with hell. The problem is with heaven. He said... Here God creates people, and they rebel against him. They ignore him. They turn the other way. they're, They're in opposition to him. So they get punished. That makes sense to me. What doesn't make sense is that there's a heaven and that anybody gets to go there. It doesn't make sense. And yet God has it. God has uh, provided it. And this is the message of salvation through Christ. 
So, although Paul came with a gospel not of human origin, but from God, we know the teachers now had a gospel of human origin. We've seen what Paul wrote and began to build a picture of the teachers. Like we said, now I want to take a step back for a moment and let's look at the book generally as a whole and talk about the thinking of this group. As we go through the, the rest of the book of Revelation, we'll see the picture of this group continue to develop. But let, let's talk about them just in general for a minute. You know, these, peop- these aren't, weren't people trying to persecute the church, trying to destroy the church. They were a very different group than we might imagine. They were a group of Jewish teachers, as far as we know, who did accept that Jesus was the Messiah. They didn't reject him. They believed he was the Son of God, and you had to believe in him. But they also said God must be obeyed by observing the law. Circumcision, dietary rules, all of the law. And that went for Gentiles too. Yeah, great, believe in in Christ. And then, remember all this law of Moses stuff? Just fall in line with that and you're going to be very acceptable to God. Well, you and I believe we need to obey God. But these teachers focused on the law. And what they really did was get things in the wrong order. Now, I'm indebted to J. Gresham Machen, an early 20th century scholar, and Tim Keller, a pastor and New York Times bestselling author, for this way of expressing this idea. But they had the wrong order. The Jewish teachers saw the process like this. Belief or faith plus obedience equals salvation. There's a number of things wrong with that order. One of the things wrong with it is the way we would experience it. Obeying God is good. We all believe that we should do that. We all recognize that disobedience to God is the root of sin. The problem with the order is that now that obedience is characterized by a number of bad things, characterized by an anxiousness and a selfishness. Anxious because how good is good enough? How much is enough? Okay, I have faith. Now, how much, how much do I have to do to cross the line and get that equal sign. And there are, there are a lot of us, and it's an experience for a lot of people like me who became Christian young. We sometimes get mixed in there the idea that somehow God's happier, loves us more if we've achieved some things. And that, that becomes sort of... Um, Uh, a selfish thing then when you're doing stuff you know the gospel of god the one paul's talking about looks like this belief equals salvation and then obedience is a natural outgrowth of this new life we have what we need to obey Look through the whole Old Testament. Israel and everybody in the Old Testament, they had trouble obeying. They had trouble meeting the requirements of the law because they couldn't. We have the righteous requirements of the law satisfied by Christ. 
So what we do now, we're already declared righteous. What we do now are things that, um, what's our motivation then for doing things now? The motivation is gratitude for the fact that we have it all. We have standing with God. We have security. We, we're going to be, we're loved to an eternal degree by a God that never changes. So we're going to be loved to an eternal degree for eternity. And that's not going to change. Uh, so, obedience coming from that is an obedience of thankfulness. It's an obedience of joy. It's something I can do. To make this God happy who saved me and did everything for me. I have that salvation. On that platform, then, uh, I, can, I can move forward. You know, the difference between these two is the difference between really, really old cars and our modern ones. Old cars had a crank in the front. And you had to crank that engine with your hand. You and I sit in our car and turn a key in an ignition or maybe press a button in your car and there you go. Uh, here's an old guy over on the right at an antique show showing off his antique car, but there he is, cranking it. Now, cranking it was cranking it, but it was, it was something more than that. There was a technique to this thing. There were instructions you had to follow. Uh, these are nine easy steps to starting a car, your Model A. Uh, of course, you set the emergency brake. You have to retard the spark by raising a lever to the top of its quadrant. You have to lower the throttle level approximately three notches. You adjust the mixture, mixture on the dash to the setting appropriate for the conditions. Moist, foggy, cold, different setting than 90 degrees, sunny. With the ignition off, hold the choke fully closed. closed. This will require either a helper or a pull cord from the lever on the carburetor to the front of the vehicle. So you've made all these settings, you're holding this cord, trying to crank. Grasp the crank, paying close attention to the thumb position below the handle. Pull the cr crank to the top briskly, but carefully. Repeat with a second pull. This is my favorite step. There should be gas running slightly from the carburetor to the floor. Now you know you're on the right track when there's gasoline on your floor. I love it. Release the choke and turn the ignition on. With one more pull of the crank, the engine should start. Never push the crank down on the right side of the rotation with the key on because it would kick back. So you had to keep your thumb under it so there's danger involved. Because if your thumb was on top and you're coming down this side to kick back, it would break your thumb. So you had to keep your, you had to keep your hand <laughs> like this so that any kickback, it would just... But anyway, so there, there's your easy steps for starting a car by crank. It gives you new appreciation for sitting in your car and turning a key. Because right now, and since, what, the 1930s, 20s, but engineers have designed vehicles so that everything you need to do to get the car running and keep it running well are all under the hood. Your job is to turn the key. This old way this teaching by the Jewish leaders of belief plus works 
is like starting your car this way. Yeah, yeah, you, you, you've got that key and ignition thing. Yeah, but you do a little of this, a little of that, a little of the other thing, and you'll get a good start out of your car. Salvation, belief equals salvation. And then from that, good works happen. Is turning the key, and God has taking, is taking care of all the functions, all the needs, everything that happens, the car itself does, takes it from there. We have everything needed for salvation. We have everything needed for our standing with God. So, we don't have to be anxious. We live in a spirit of power, love, and clear thinking, not in a spirit of fear. We, could, uh, we, have a, we are secure, we have perfect acceptance, and we can obey with a focus on giving to others. I'm okay. I'm accepted. All my needs are met in Jesus. And because He's blessed me and met my emotional, psychological needs, I don't need others to provide those things for me. So there's a, the difference is crucial, and Paul's going to clarify this better in coming chapters. But this week, as I have been for the last... Um, at least week, you ought to take a look, take stock of the things you do for the Lord, the service that you're doing. Is it, is it a joyful service? It is, a, is it a giving and, and there it is? Or are you looking, in some small way, are you feeling like what you're doing for the Lord is uh, something that makes you a good Christian? Let me just phrase it that way. I have trouble with the anxiousness part uh, just by, by personality. And so when I was younger, and I didn't appreciate the extent to which God love is expressed through the cross, uh, I know that I, it meant something to me. I remember I've led three youth groups, I guess, in, in, my, in my days, but the first one in particular, I just remember, like, yeah, these guys and gals, they, yeah, we've got something going here. I'm something as a youth group leader. And I, I was getting something out of it. So I would, my service had that flavor to it because I was thinking about getting something from it. It wasn't necessary to secure salvation, but it wasn't service from that open, giving heart. It wasn't God's love channeled through me. It was me doing something nice because I was getting something back. So give a look at your service. Um, the anxious part comes in because I have somebody on my shoulder that is very quick to point out when I haven't done things perfectly. And, uh, and so I get a little nervous about things I do for the Lord. I have to keep fighting that. It's just my prevailing wind. It's what I have to set my sails to fight against. Uh, but we don't have to have any of those feelings. We know we can fight against them. We know we can speak truth. We can think truth. We can count on truth. That uh, there's nothing that God needs from us. Uh, he just wants. Wants us to serve Him. And He's just saying, go. Go do it. Go with my joy, with my love, with my peace, and go do it. Give a thought to your service. And let that bring you back to Christ. 
back to the salvation that God provides, back to the good things and the standing that you have. Those of you that are in the Ephesians class here at 10 o'clock, and by the way, when Sunday school starts, you are welcome to come next week to the Ephesians class. That book, this book of Galatians, is sort of that one side of the conversations. In the book of Ephesians, Paul spends, he's really addressing the overall issue of how does the New Testament church deal with a whole bunch of Gentiles coming in now? You know, God has worked through the Jews, so they understood that. But he lays out this, for three chapters, this, these truths about what salvation means, what it's about, why we should act certain ways. And in chapters 4 through 6, here's how you should act. So uh, this dovetails well with the book of Galatians. But anyway, that's, that's the first section of the book of Galatians. We're going to go on and talk about um, further into chapter 2 next week and other chapters in subsequent weeks. So let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Lord, it's incredible how great our salvation is. It's inconceivable that you would do everything that you have done in seeking us out, in wooing us to yourself. Ephesians says we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That we have everything that we need. Everything we could ever need. Everything we could ever want from a spiritual standpoint. Help us to be people who live in your love, who um, appreciate and are grateful for what you've done. Help us to realize that and enjoy the, the joy and the comfort of being in you. And that that should motivate us then to serve you, to give to others, uh, not be reactors to people, but act in love in all these situations. And, and by doing that, show them Christ. Dismisses with your blessing. In your name, amen.